The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and open them up to Matthew chapter 18? Uh, Matthew 18 is where we're going to spend our time. Uh, If you have a phone or a tablet, you're welcome to open that up to Matthew 18. You can open those hardback black Bibles that are found under every chair to Matthew 18. That's on page 823. Uh, Matthew 18 is where we're going to spend all of our time this morning. And I want to start, as you're you're meeting me there, I want to start with a bit of a confession. Uh, Hi, my name is Chris, and I am a millennial. Thank you. Thank you. I feel, feel like this is a safe place to admit that. I'm a, just, I'm a millennial. Okay. I just need you to know that. Uh, that's like my, 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 what, what popular culture has kind of deemed my generation. We're called the millennials. Actually, uh, I'm kind of borderline. Okay. I'm like borderline millennial, borderline gen, gen X. Like I could go either way. I, I, I see, like I was re- born in the mid eighties. So that's kind of the middle point for uh, the cutoff point for gen X into millennials. So I could go either way, but uh, born in the eighties, really bad hair, really great music. Okay. Just no, no one's arguing with that one, all right? Uh, but, but there's some, some generalizations about millennials, uh, some of which I think are, are unfair uh, and some are fair, okay? Here's one of them, though. One generalization about millennials is that we are entitled and prideful and full of ourselves way before we've accomplished anything to be proud of, which is pretty much true, Okay? It's pretty much true, okay? It's just true about me. It's true about our generation. And at a certain point, that's okay to, to say. But, uh, but I think some of the reason behind that is because my generation is the product of what's known as the self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement. Uh, the, here, here's how I'll, I'll tell you what the self-esteem movement is. Everyone's special in the self-esteem movement. Okay, everyone's unique, Everyone's beautiful. Everyone gets a trophy. That's my, that's my generation, right? You're good enough. You're smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like you, right? That's, that's millennials, all right? Uh, you're the greatest. You're, the gra- you're just great. That's what the millennials are, okay? And now hear me. We don't believe that because it's, our, it's like it's not our fault that we believe it, okay? That's our parents' fault. All right, so boomers, you're to blame for us. Just so you know, like I didn't tell myself I was the greatest. My mom told me that. So she's to blame, okay? Mama told me what many parents told their children. Uh, she, my mom, I love my mom. She told me this. She said, Chris, you can do anything. You can do anything that you set your mind to. And I love mama. Maybe, maybe she's watching. I love you, mom. But you lied to me. Mama's a liar. Listen, boomers, you lied to us. You lied to us. Okay, there are things that I can't do. There are things that I cannot do. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I try to apply myself, I am just not great at everything. As hard as that is to believe. As hard as that is to believe. Uh, but don't tell that to, you know, Tommy. Don't tell that to Tommy because you'll, you'll hurt his widow feelings, right? But that's, that's how it's all played out, okay? I'm just telling you. Um, ego and pride and greatness, it's something that's wrapped up in my generation. But I would posit that it's also bigger than that. It's not just a millennial problem. It's a human problem. It's a human problem. And, and for our text today, we're going to see this was a problem two millennia ago. 
Okay, in order to understand the beginning of Matthew chapter 18, though, we have to understand what's happened the last couple of chapters. We need to know the context. So in, 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 in chapter 16, Jesus' identity as the Christ, the son of the living God, is uh, correctly identified by Peter, the apostle Peter. And Jesus commends Peter for this admission, for this confession, and he makes him essentially the de facto leader of the disciples. Peter, upon this rock, upon that confession, I will build my church. You're going to be like the first pope or something, okay? That's essentially what he does in chapter 16. In chapter 17, Jesus then takes Peter, James, and John, his three favorite disciples, up on a mountain, and he leaves the other nine down in the valley. This Mount of Transfiguration, something wild happens up there. And then they come down from the mountain to find that the other nine, the nine who had been left at the bottom of the mountain, were unable to cast out a demon from an epileptic boy. That's what we read about a few weeks ago. Uh, they had likely, those nine disciples, had likely been jealous of the three disciples who were invited up the mountain and had tried to cast out this demon on their own. Like without prayer, without God's assistance, they try to do it themselves. And now as we come to chapter 18, we find that the disciples are preoccupied with the idea of greatness, of greatness, right? Like uh, that's what we just had read over us. And I want you to know, this has all been building Chapter 16, Peter becomes the leader. Chapter 17, three favorites get to go up the mountain and then the other nine feel slighted and fail in the valley. So there's some real rivalry that's leading into what happens in our text today. But that sets up the question that the disciples are gonna ask Jesus in chapter 18. Uh, and Jesus is gonna actually use this as a teaching opportunity. So that's where we're at. Matthew chapter 18, we're gonna pick it up in verse one. So uh, look at your text with me. Matthew 18, one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So, so that's the question. That's the setup for this whole passage. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Matthew's gospel in particular, of all the synoptic gospels, Matthew's gospel is always uh, showing Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom themes run all through this gospel. So Jesus is always saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is, is like this. It's like that. It's like, it's like mustard seed. It's like a big tree. It's like, it's like all these different things. He's always talking about the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is going to bring and inaugurate. And the thing that you have to know about a kingdom is that there's always an, uh, an order in a kingdom. There's always an order, okay? So, of course, you've got the king at the top. He is the sovereign. That's the idea. The king rules the kingdom. But then there are people kind of up there with him in his court. And then you've got some, some people in the middle. And then, ultimately, there are people at the bottom in any kingdom. There's a pecking order. And so the question that the disciples are asking is, hey, Jesus, yeah, we, we get that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. We, we, well, you're the king, okay? But who's going to be up there with you? Like, who's in the top echelon in your kingdom? Who's the greatest? And commentators agree that this isn't just like some information-seeking abstract question. They're not like genuinely curious in the qualities that lead to greatness. 
contextually, it's clear they're not very interested in like the actual actualities of kingdom realities uh, behind greatness. Like, but Jesus is going to use this to teach. They're really what we know because of chapter 16 and 17. We know they're interested in where they fit in the pecking order. They're really most interested in which of us is the greatest. Yeah, you made Peter the leader. You took those three up the mountain, but, but who's the greatest in your kingdom? And in Mark's passage in particular, Mark has a parallel passage to this. Uh, it says that the disciples had been arguing about this. Like they'd been arguing on the road and then Jesus engages them on this topic. So their question shows that their primary interest is in status. It's in power. It's in authority, in particular, their own authority, their own status, their own power in this new kingdom. They want to know where they fit, as it were. Now, Jesus, to their question, is going to give them the most counterintuitive, upside down, inside out idea of human greatness that had ever been uttered. Now, we might think it might be a little commonplace to think this way, but Jesus answered in a completely unique and new way than anybody at his time would have ever answered that question. And it's altered the rest of human history in how we view leadership and greatness, okay? So here we go. Look at verse two. Verse two. And calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that's Jesus' answer. That's Jesus' answer to the question. He just said, if you want to be greatest in my kingdom, you must become like children, like the least, the, the, the smallest, the weakest. And that idea, hear me, had never been uttered before in human history. Sometimes leadership, we talk about like servant leadership. That idea didn't exist. Servants were to serve the leaders. Leaders didn't serve their subjects. Servants served their leaders. And Jesus just flipped that on its head. He brings out a child. He says, hey, true greatness in this kingdom means you become like this little guy or girl. That's, that's where true greatness is found. Now, children today, like our children, are viewed differently than children were viewed in uh, the ancient Near East. They just are, okay? Uh, we see a child being brought to Jesus, and immediately we go like, oh, Right, like we picture like blonde, flowing-haired, blue-eyed Jesus with like a lamb over his shoulder and little children like, you know, prancing out behind him. That's what we, we picture in our minds. That's not what, what he's doing here. That's not what's contextually happening here. Because we, we think that because we live in a child-centric culture. Right, children rule the roost in most homes. That's the, that, the reality because especially in the suburbs, everything revolves around our little people. Right? That's just true. It's just true. But in the Greco-Roman first century world, children are viewed much differently than they are viewed today. They just are, okay? Uh, children were to be seen, but not heard. And every parent said amen to that. I'll take that one back, right? right? 
Children in the, in the ancient world were worth less than many possessions. They were worth less than many possessions. Hear me, especially female children. I'm sorry, that, that, that's just the way that it was in the Greek, Greco-Roman culture. Uh, this is why baby girls are the ones most often left outside in the elements to ex- die of exposure. They didn't want girls. They wanted boys. But then hear me, even the boys weren't accepted by their fathers until they reached the age of 11 or 12. They hoped that they would survive, but by the time they were 11 or 12, that's when they became valuable. Until then, they would be taught or trained by somebody else, not by their father, and then they were introduced to their fathers around the age of 11 or 12. At that point, they were considered sons. At that point, they were heirs. But up until that point, they were just kind of lesser than So what Jesus is doing in this illustration when he brings a little child right up here is he is taking the very least of their society, the lowest from their society, the very bottom rung on the social ladder. And he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you become like that. Become like a child. Now, what does that actually mean though? Like, what does it mean to become a child? Jesus doesn't really tell us. Actually, that's all he gives us right there. Become like a child, period. No explanation. So we are left to kind of work out what that actually means based on the rest of the, uh, the testimony of the scripture and wisdom. So we have to come up with that. Jesus is clear. If you want greatness, it's okay. He doesn't say you shouldn't want greatness. Did you notice that? He doesn't say you shouldn't want to be great. He says, if you want to be great, Greatness is, can, it can be found. You just got to become like a child. You have to become childlike. So we have to do some work on defining what is childlikeness. What does it mean to be great, to be childlike? Because Jesus doesn't mean that you are like a child in every way. Obviously. I mean, I hope that's obvious. Some people may, may not exist that way, but like there, there are many ways in which kids are childish and we shouldn't emulate that, right? Actually, the Bible commands us to put away childish things, right? To grow into maturity. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, he says, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up those childish things, So the Bible just said, be childlike, but don't be childish. So there must be something that kids do that is worthy of imitation and some things that kids do that we should give up. Both must be true if we're to be faithful to the biblical witness. So what does Jesus actually mean when he says you got to become like little children? What is he saying here? Well, I'm sure there are plenty and we could talk about this, but I'm going to give you three because we're Baptist-ish, right? So like three, like I have to give you three, okay? I have three ways uh, to be childlike. Not childish, but childlike. Three things that I think will help us in this greatness quest that we are on. So first, one aspect of being childlike uh, is that children are dependent, Children are dependent. See, um, one of the things that I think we mistakenly believe is that as you grow up, 
you are supposed to become more independent. You're supposed to move away from dependence and become more independent. And in some ways, that's true. Right? Like, get a job, okay? Yeah, pay your own bills. Like, do some of the, like, there's some good things that are childish that you should move away from. Like, yes, and amen to some of that. But Jesus just said that the kingdom of God is actually kind of upside down. It's flipped on its head from how we would think it works. You see, often Christians think that maturity means needing help less and less and less. That's what we often think. But this text would say emphatically that's incorrect. That's incorrect. Childlikeness is realizing how dependent we actually are. It's realizing how dependent we are. In the kingdom, listen, self-reliance is actually self-sabotage. In, in God's kingdom, self-reliance. I got this. We talk about this all the time, right? Self-reliance is actually self-sabotage. You don't become more independent as you become great. You become more dependent. Goodness, more dependent on the Lord, absolutely, but more dependent on others and more dependent on your church. These are good and right childlike aspects. We're to change and become like children in our dependence. So uh, it, it brings me, I, here's the illustration. It brings me so much delight to see my daughter need me. It's strange how much I love her needing my help. You would think, oh man, like I'd get irritated or, or tired of her asking for help. I love it. I love it. One of the things that I mourn as she gets older is that she doesn't depend on me the same way as she did when she was littler. It's already changing. She's only eight, but it's already changing. So here's the illustration. When she was three, when Harper was three, uh, she had this like strange independent streak. Maybe it's not strange. They say terrible twos. We had a three-nager. You know the difference between those, okay? We had a three-nager. She was full-blown independent, wanted to do everything herself, that was the idea of Harper at three. Uh, everything. I flushed the toilet. <sighs> you would, you, you'd think I you know, killed a dog or something if I flushed the toilet before she did. I flushed the toilet. I get in bed. I push the cart. She couldn't push the cart. She had no muscles to push the cart. But I would have to hold the cart, and she would be here trying to push the cart through King Supers. Everywhere we went, everywhere we went, she did it herself. Well, she started wanting to dress herself. She wanted to dress herself. And listen... At that point, match, don't match, I don't care, okay? I'm a dad, I don't care. Okay, Marcy cared, I didn't care, okay? Like one time she came out of her bedroom, footy pajamas on that she had slept in, all right? A princess dress over the top of those, kind of like hiked up, and a backwards pink cowboy hat on her head. There, you're three, all right? Sounds fine by me, that's, that's totally fine. You, you're not going to middle school like that. All right, but like right now, go for it, whatever, okay? The problem though was when she started trying to dress herself is that a lot of her clothes would have been impossible for grown people to put on. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know who's designing children's clothes, but she had this one shirt with like 13 buttons down the back. 13 buttons, I'm not, I, I counted them, a dozen plus one, a baker's dozen of buttons down the back of a little girl's t-shirt. And, and, and so she's like trying, I, I wanna do it, I do it, daddy. And I'm like, I couldn't even do that. 
I, I, I zip up mama's dress. Like, I, we need help, okay? Uh, but, but she, uh, if we tried to help her, she'd pitch a fit. She'd lose her mind, all right? Literally, I remember, she would throw herself on the ground. And we'd never get her dressed. Just never get her dressed. Now, Marcy's much more patient than I am. Okay, she is just, a, she just is. She's a, better, she's a better parent all around. So she would like, she had like a sticker chart, right? She's a teacher at Harper. So she just like had a sticker chart for Harper and she would like talk to her through these tantrums. She was just better at this than I am. Uh, but with me, when Harper wouldn't get dressed, uh, she, 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 she would try to get it dressed. She couldn't figure it out and she didn't want my help. And so what I would do is I would just do this. I would put my hands up and I'd say, okay, you do it. You do it, okay? I'm an expert with buttons, by the way, but you do it, okay? You do it, I'll be in the other room. And I'd walk out. I would just walk out of the room. And then anywhere from 30 seconds to 30 minutes later, okay? Anywhere in that, in that spectrum, I would hear her from the other room. I would hear her melting down, just on the floor screaming, I'm frustrated. Just screaming from her room, I'm frustrated. But hear me, there comes a time where, where you're like, all right, girl. Like, if you don't want my help, you're gonna, you need to learn something here. It was a learning lesson. I am actually a good dad, okay? It was a learning opportunity. So I'd sit in the other room and let her melt down. I would sit in the other room and she would fight with all her might to try to button 13 buttons down her back. And she would always fail, and then she would finally come and get my help. Or a couple of times, the thing that she would do is sometimes she would take that shirt and she would swing it around and put it on backwards so the buttons faced forward, but she could still only get like two or three of those buttons because the slit was just like terribly small in comparison. She could only get two or three, and they were always the wrong buttons, right? So it's all screwy. And then she'd come out, pretend, she would, she'd be like, okay, like it was on correctly, she would be like, look, okay, right, let's go play. And, I, and, I, and I'd be like, is that even on? Is it, I can't feel good. But she so wanted to do it by herself that hear me, even when she failed, she'd pretend like she did it. Uh-oh. But see, finally, when she was either busted in her pretending or at the end of her little three-year-old rope, she'd come to me and she'd sit in my lap and I'd get that shirt on straight and I'd get those buttons all lined up. I only messed up a couple of times, but I'd get those buttons on right and then we'd go out and play. Church, a childish tantrum because we can't seem to get the buttons of our lives to work is much different than a childlike dependence on a good father who is an expert with buttons. Childlike greatness is found in being dependent. Dependence. All right. Second aspect of childlikeness that I want us to uh, look at today. Children are humble. Some parents in here are like, not mine, right? <laughs> I don't know about yours, pastor. She seems awesome, but like, not mine. And now, now, hold on. Okay, stay with me here, okay? We are to change and become like a child in our humility, and we have to remember the context of the illustration. 
okay, children in the first century would never be made much of. They would never make much of themselves. Okay, now I'm, I'm not saying that's how we should treat children again, okay? Don't hear me say that. But the illustration that Jesus is using is about humility. It's about humility. Our world teaches us that we should make much of ourselves because no one else is gonna. And Jesus is saying, no, we need to change and become humble like children. And actually the exact words in verse four are humble yourself. Humble yourself. That means that humility is an action. It's not a feeling. You don't feel humble. You either are humble or you aren't humble or you get humbled, but it's an action. It's something that you can practice. It's something that you can work on. So humility, we've talked about this before in previous sermons, but humility is a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing for the Christian because the question is like, can you know if you're humble? Like, are you allowed to know if you are humble? So if you say, yeah, I feel like God has just been really growing me significantly in humility. Like, I'm just getting really humble. Like, are you? Are you sure? Are you sure? Like, did you just brag about being humble? Because I think that actually negates the whole thing. Humility, it's tricky. I'm not sure if you even know it. The most humble people I know wouldn't say that they're humble. Okay, but it's tricky on the other side because the opposite of humility is pride, and that's tricky too because no one thinks they're prideful. No one thinks they're prideful. They just think they're awesome. No one does. It's not, I'm not prideful. I'm just better at everything than everybody else. <laughs> but I'm not prideful, certainly not. I'm probably humble, Right? Probably humble that I don't know what's best to everybody at everything, right? That's, this is tricky, okay? True greatness, though, is humbling ourselves before the Lord. It's humbling ourselves. And this is in direct contrast to what the disciples did in chapter 17, trying to cast out that demon without prayer, without God. That's a prideful move rather than a humble move. So we humble ourselves by acknowledging our weaknesses, Humility is acknowledging, I don't got this. It's acknowledging our weakness, our relative weakness next to the God that we love and serve. So here, another, I'm going to only use kid illustrations today because it's Father's Day, okay? And because this is a sermon on childlikeness, okay? Uh, so, so my daughter Harper is now eight. She was three in the last illustration. She is eight today. And hear me, she loves to wrestle, she loves to wrestle, which really means blindly chasing up on me and punching me in the kidney, okay? <laughs> which I tell her is an illegal wrestling move, and then I dominate, all right? Uh, but that first move she's got me on, um, but she loves to wrestle. She always has, and, and it's been a real fun thing for us. But, but hear me, hear me, okay? If she, if I, she, would, she would not want me to bring her up here, but if I brought her up here and we somehow got her to you know, do a little interview, and I said, hey, who would win in a fight? You or daddy? Listen, she has no delusions that I can take her. From past experience and just from sheer size, all right? She, is, she knows it. She's like 50 pounds. Listen, I can dominate any one of your kids, all right? No problem, no problem, all right? I'm just saying, like that, I, I'm a humble. I'm, right, I'm working on humility on this one, but I could take them. And she knows it. Now hear me, she knows it, and yet she still wants to wrestle, 
Like she still wants to play, even though, listen, she'll never win. She'll never win. Kids know this. They know they can't win and yet they still want to play. This is why kids say things like this. Hey, my dad could beat up your dad. It's acknowledgement of weakness. It's not like I can fight you. It's, hey, don't mess with me because I've got my dad on my side. I'm, I know I'm weak. I know I can't fight. But my dad, he could whoop your dad. I've seen your dad mowing the lawn. What is that thing, a rider? Come on, he pushes it like a man, right? Like that's, that's, that's what happens here. Kids acknowledge their weakness because they've got a dad who can fight for them. You can be humble when you know you've got him on your side. So childlike, childlike greatness here. It's dependent. It's being humble. One more for you. Greatness like this can be seen because children are still growing. They're still growing. This point came from a conversation that I had with Amanda this week. She was like, learn, she's like, yeah, childlikeness is learning. It's growing. It's, it's being humble enough to, to learn still, to be open still. So here's what I wrote down. Kids aren't finished products. They're works in progress. And I think that's part of what Jesus is talking about when he's saying you got to become great like a child. As we are more childlike, we stay hungry to keep learning and growing. We stay hungry to keep learning. Learning in and of itself is somewhat of a, of a, of a medicine against pride already. It already is. There's this tendency, hear me, as we get more older, as we get more mature, the tendency can be to kind of get crusty, to get kind of set in our ways. I heard that chuckle. It's to get less curious. Goodness, as you get older, you shouldn't, though, become a know-it-all, right? If anything, you should become a, a know that I'm not a know-it-all, know that I don't know much at all. What I know is barely anything. Like you should know that there's nothing, nobody that's a know-it-all. You only think you're a know-it-all when you don't realize that you're not a know-it-all. Sadly, most of us aren't on that trajectory. Most of us become less open to continuing to grow in what we know. As we get older, we become less curious to learn and to grow and to develop. And we, we often think, hey, I've reached a certain point, this certain age where now I'm the teacher. I'm always the teacher. I'm never the learner. That's pride. That's textbook definition pride. But my daughter, once again, little Harper, she believes everything I tell her, which could be a bad thing, right? It could be a very bad thing, right? I could straight up lie to her and we do. She would be none the wiser, right? It's called the tooth fairy. We lie to her face. So do you, okay? We're good, good parents, okay? Uh, but listen, she trusts us wholly, completely. She knows that she doesn't know. Now she's starting to grow out of that again, which is part of growing up, and that's hard to stomach. But Jesus is saying that we should be more childlike in that way. Asking questions, being curious, knowing that we don't know. And this comes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago, because you, you see, we tend to think that when we get things right, like when we get things figured out, 
that then is when God is most pleased with us. We tend to think that once we've got things sorted and and orderly and cleaned up to a certain level in our lives, that's when Jesus is really pumped that we're on his team. Right? We think it's our success that God delights in. We think it's our holiness that gains us access to the heavenly father, but it's really our helplessness. It's our childlikeness, our dependence and humility and desire to grow. That's where he wants to work. That's where he wants us to enter in with him. So hear me, childlike greatness. It's dependent, it's humble, and it's growing. There's more undoubtedly more, but those are the three that I've got for you today. Now, with those three things in mind, look at verses five and six. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So this is a famous millstone passage, okay? The mafia passage is what some call it, all right? Me, that's who calls it that. Um, but, but when we read this, those two verses, uh, often we see the word child. Anyone who receives a child And then we see the word little ones. Anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble. And we think that those are synonymous terms. But actually, if you read the Greek, if you do some word study on those two uh, words, it's not the case. These are two completely different Greek words with two completely different ideas. And what Jesus is doing is he's bridging out of the illustration into application here. That's what he's doing. So he is using a child as an illustration as to what his disciples should be like. So when he changes the language from children to little ones, what he is intentionally doing is now referring to any disciple who has become childlike. He's moving from just talking about children to talking about anyone who is pursuing greatness with that kingdom ethic behind it. So this text, hear me, it's not simply saying, hey, be careful not to cause children to sin. Be careful not to lead them with bad teaching or bad actions or bad home life or bad anything. Be careful. He's not only saying that. In fact, what he's saying is be careful not to cause any childlike Christian, a little one, to sin. So the warning to us is don't hinder the growth of childlike Christians. Don't hinder the growth of dependent, humble, changing Christians, childlike Christians. It, it'd actually be better to, you know, tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the sea than it would be to face God's wrath for causing one of his little ones to stumble. You know what that tells me? That tells me that um, little Christians, baby Christians, infant Christians, 
humble Christians, growing Christians, dependent Christians, who we give any sort of reason to back away from their pursuit of that childlike faith, we are the ones who are in sin there. Paul will pick this up in the book of Romans where he says, bear with one another in love. Bear with the weaker brother or sister. He's giving instructions on how Christian community should focus around loving, serving, and leading all childlike Christians, which by the way, is supposed to be all of us. If you think you're an adult Christian, you're wrong. You should be childlike. So this is my childlike sermon. So how do I wrap this one up? How do I close down the childlike sermon? Well, uh, I have used this Matt Chandler illustration like a hundred times because I think it's the best one. And so I'm going to use it again. Sorry. If you're newer, it's brand new. Okay. And I probably made it up, but, um, but we've got a lot of kiddos here at our church, a lot of them in, in, in those rooms right now. And there seems to be something uh, of a badge of honor on how, how you parent. Like parents use, use these things as badges of honor to, to say, I'm a good parent based on how early my kid does something. It's like a badge of honor, okay, right? So like benchmarks. So if your kid can throw a wiffle ball, like you can throw a wiffle ball and you're like, dang, look at Billy. He's got an arm. Yeah, he's only six months old, okay? But look at that throw, I mean, I think that was a curveball, which by the way, wiffle balls do that, all right? Your kid's not like whipping that thing around, all right? It's just what happens with wiffle balls. But you're like, babe, we gotta get this kid on the right track. We got, he, he might have a future. He could play in the majors. It's like, oh, okay, hold on a second. You, at this point, you're like, all right, I gotta do this. I gotta get my six-month-old on a training regimen. I'm gonna start adding a little creatine to the bottle, like get him bulking up, right? Ready to look into the traveling teams and stuff like that. And I'll just tell you the truth, okay? Because I, I love you, because I'm your pastor, because I love you, dads. Dad's in here. Look at me. I've seen your kids. And I'm looking at you. All right, they ain't playing in the ball, okay? They're not playing in the majors, all right? He's no ball player. That throw stinks, okay? Happy Father's Day. It's my gift to you. It's the gift of truth in love, all right? Or, or sometimes I've heard, like, if your kid potty trains early, you think that that's like a sign of an elevated uh, uh, intellect, like you think, oh my gosh, this, is, this kid's gonna be a doctor or a lawyer, okay? Because they went potty trained early. But I've got news for you. News for you, sorry, okay? Parents, not wanting to sit in your own feces is not a sign of increased intelligence. <laughs> okay, everybody does that. Eventually, everybody does that. Save the Harvard you know, application for later in life, all right? See how they do math, all right, before we start going on that. But the biggest one that every parent like judges their parenting with other parenting uh, on is, is, is walking. It's when kids walk. When did your kid first walk? Every parent measures the intelligence of their kid based on when they started walking. And so you've got parents who swear their kid's gonna be like the next president of the United States or like a senator or something because they started walking at eight months, right? They, oh, this kid is so smart, started walking at eight months. Let me just tell you, okay? Your eight-month-old who's walking, creepy. <laughs> that's creepy. Okay, that's weird. That's a baby, all right? That's still a, a baby. It's a weird little Chucky doll walking around like that. That's weird. <laughs> Scary. It's terrifying. But it always happens the same way. That walking process, it always happens the same way, right? The, the walking process starts with a child crawling 
Although Harper didn't crawl. She did this like little like army ground maneuver that was very strange. I was very uncomfortable by it. But she started, started crawling and then, then your child realizes that all the good stuff isn't on the floor, it's up on the coffee table. So they get to the coffee table and they pull themselves up to the coffee table. And then eventually they realize they can side shuffle <laughs> along the coffee table, right? It's like they're moving laterally. It's an incredible uh, movement at that point. Um, and then once they reach the end of the coffee table, this is where moment of truth happens. Moment of truth at the end of the coffee table, what happens? Well, they... They have one hand out, one hand out. Mama or daddy is right there. Somebody else has the phone, the iPhone, right, right there. Or when I was a kid, it was this one, right? With like a battery pack the size of New Jersey on there and just ready for it. But one hand here, and this is what happens every time. Step, 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 fall, right? Face plant into the floor. That's what happens every single time. And what happens after that? The parents erupt, Right, it's like, yeah, she's walking, right? I'm not sure that was really walking. I mean, it's like stumbling. It almost didn't count, right? But like, yes, it's like they, she, you celebrate, like they just cured cancer or something. It happens in every single home, okay? That's what happened for Harper, who walked at 11 months, FYI, all right? Um, <laughs> but then what happens after that? For the next couple of days or weeks sometimes, uh, she could only take seven or eight or nine steps, and then, and then she would fall, fall on her face. Every time we would celebrate. Not quite as exuberant as the first time or the second time because we didn't have the phone the first time, so we had to stage the fake first walk again. But like every time we would still celebrate her. And here's the thing. As her father, never ever did I think about the falls. Never did I think about the falls. I mean, I never went, God, now when is this kid gonna learn to walk. When is this gonna happen? Sweetie, this must be from your side of the family. (laughs) The Martins, hear me, we're pro walkers all day long, right? I do this all day long. Okay, this must be a Robinson thing, not a Martin thing. Martins are walkers. Goodness, for a treat, I can get the dog up on her hind legs and she'll walk. Like, like what's, I, we never did that. We never once did that. How cruel of a father would I be? How cruel of a parent would we be? We never looked at the falls. We always celebrated the steps. Always. And now listen, she's eight now. And she's way better at walking than she was when she was 11 months. She busted that Robinson gene apart. I'm so proud of her, okay? <laughs> but now when she falls, it's, it's much worse. Like falls don't get better, they get worse. because she's moving much faster now and she's walking in much more dangerous environments. Like the street is more dangerous than our carpeted living room. See, the further she progresses in her ability to walk, the harder the falls are that she experiences. And listen, she's eight and I'm still there when she's fallen. And, and she is still childlike in that she runs to me when she falls. She runs to me. And I still never find myself frustrated by the falls. I never find myself frustrated. Rather, I do find myself kissing her and, and putting on princess band-aids, sometimes more than would ever need for any sort of wound, right? 
holding and snuggling until the tears are gone. But then, but then hear me, after a few minutes, she's, she's ready. She's ready to run again. And she gets out of my lap and starts to run. That illustration, church. See, we, we think greatness is defined by how well we walk. But greatness is actually defined by what we do when we fall. We think it's about how good we walk. Like that somehow he's more proud of us. Somehow he's more pleased with us. Somehow he's frustrated when we keep tripping, when we keep stumbling. But Jesus just said, hey, be great like a child. Crash into things. Trip over yourself. Fall face first, but every single time, get up and run to him. Get up and run to dad. He's there for you. This is child-likeness, my friends. We have a good heavenly father who rejoices in the steps and heals the falls. We have a good heavenly father who loves to see us run and doesn't tire in picking us up when we've fallen. See, that's the good news in all of this childlikeness stuff. See, the good news is that when man or when a man or a woman who's running towards him, when we fall, not if we fall, but, but when we fall, we don't find an angry God. We don't find an angry dad. We find a merciful dad, a merciful father, a good God. He offers mercy towards childish, childishness and encouragement toward childlikeness. He says, I forgot all about the fall. Yeah, thanks for telling me about the fall, but you don't need to keep telling me about it because I've forgotten it. I just saw you running. I just saw the steps. I was so excited about the fact that you were moving, that you were running, that you were doing this, that I don't even remember that you fell. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And most of us were beating ourselves up over the fall. And Jesus is just going, what fall? You got back up. You got that Moana Band-Aid on. Let's go. Let's run. So church, where do you find yourself today? Do you find yourself exhausted with any of these things? Trying desperately to do it yourself. Trying desperately to have all the right answers. Trying desperately to work those 13 buttons trying to desperately to walk and walk and walk and never fall or hide the fall or pretend that you didn't fall only to find yourself striking out over and over and over again? Listen to me. Stop trying to get dressed all by yourself. He's an expert with buttons. Stop walking around pretending that you're shirt is buttoned correctly when it isn't. Just cry to, hey, help me with this. Help me. Become like a child. Humble yourself and you will find true greatness in the kingdom of heaven.
Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. Thank you for the the model that you are as a good dad, as a good father, as a good Lord and savior. And gosh, we're so twisted by our own self-worth, by our own inadequacies, by our own wounds from our father, from our parents, from our upbringing. But God, we often transfer that onto you and we think, man, someday you're gonna really love us. Someday you're really gonna be pleased with us. Someday you're really gonna accept me. It's like we believe, like the Romans believed, that by seven or or 11 or 12, after we've been trained and we kind of have our things in line, then we get to be your children. Then we get to be your son or daughter. But what Jesus is saying is become like a child. You wanna be great, become the least. And each one of us, Father, can do that. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, you are the true preacher of Fathom Church. Preach to our hearts. Preach to the places that that we have lost childlikeness in. Preach to the areas where we've, our, our posture is, I've got this. Show us where we can become more dependent and more humble, growing in childlikeness. So my words cannot do this, Father, only your words to our hearts. So Holy Spirit, do your good work as we respond. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.